We're going to be in a text in uh, Romans, in a difficult text, but I want to start our, our conversation about chapter 9 of Romans and asking the question, what is something that you benefit from every day, but if honest, you really don't understand how it works? Think through your life. What are some things that you benefit from every day, but if you're honest, you don't really understand how it works? I think of this morning when I first got up, what do you do? You flip the light switch to get some light in the room. How does that work? How This little switch enables power to go through your walls to a light bulb that lights up, that illuminates the... Like, what, what, anybody else confused by the, those things, little things? How about on your drive over here? How do you take gasoline to con- change it into power that then converts to moving a car down the road at 50, 60, 80 miles an hour, for, in Gordon's case, uh, to get here to church? But how, 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 does that, how, does that actually, how does that actually work? Or maybe you turned on your computer this morning. Some, I admit, some people understand it more than others. But if you opened up the back of a computer, do you really feel like you could explain it to someone else how it all functions together? Some of you are like, yes, I could. Well, I couldn't. Well, here, here's the big one. What's in most of our pockets? Anybody have one of these cell phones? Like, are you kidding me? Like, how in the world, if you were abducted by an alien and forced to explain how this technology works, could you do it? No. Yet we enjoy it every single day. We appreciate all the things. We've become even technology snobs. Have you noticed this when your cell phone doesn't get immediate reception? You're like, come on, what is this doing? I know it's supposed to bounce off something in the, in the, in the atmosphere, and it should send a signal, and I should have access to all the world's information on my phone right now. You know, like we're weird about this technology, but the truth is we don't necessarily get it how it works. We don't, we don't grasp it. And really that is the, the, the understanding or the, the groundwork that I wanted to lay this morning as it relates to our topic. There's an interesting verse found in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I've mentioned before relating to God. For now we see in a mirror dimly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is critical in our understanding of this morning's text, acknowledging that God isn't a nice, simple creation or person that you put into a nice little box and you're like, okay, I fully get it. I understand it. I grasp it. I No, that's not the God that we serve. That's not how we relate with a God that knows all things, that's omnipresent, that's not bound by by time, space. Like, how in the world can we assume that in our finite minds we grasp the, the ultimate, the divine? It doesn't make sense. And I think it's important for us to understand that this morning as we dive into the text with some questions that I would propose are pretty challenging so instead, I would propose that instead of clinging to or, or wrestling through all of the things that we don't understand, I think it's important for us to cling to some of the things that we do understand about his character. Because when we cling to the things that we do know about his character, it allows us to trust in the areas that we don't fully understand. When we cling to the mercy and grace that we've experienced in our lives, all of a sudden you're like, oh, maybe I can, can trust that about some things that I don't fully grasp. And I wanted to lay that out because it's important this morning that we're going to cling to things that we understand and be okay with some things that, man, I don't know if I fully get that. 
That's a foundation for our time in Romans 9. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your revealed self in the Word of God, but we understand that right now, with our limitations, we only see just a, a glimpse of the scope of all that you are. That's what makes you God. I pray this morning that maybe we'd get a little bit clearer of a peek of who you are, a little bit better understanding, but also be okay without fully grasping you. God, I pray that through this text that you would be great, I would be small, that I pray that each person would really choose to engage this morning and not check out. They, they choose to wrestle through some of the tough questions that are proposed in our text. Ask that you be great and I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. So turning to Romans 9, I emailed you about it this week saying, hey, it would be helpful if you read this in advance so we can uh, wrestle through this together. We're going to start in verse 1, and we have a lofty goal of making it all the way through chapter 9 this morning. And I do that simply because it's really one big idea. We're talking about God's sovereignty in this text, and so it's important not to take chunks of it, although we'll have to break it down this morning, but to have one topic here this morning. The first thing that we're going to see in the text is Paul's heart that broke for his Jewish brothers. Take a look at verse 1. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears, my, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul starts by making a, a pretty big deal here about what, what do we see in the text? He's making a, a pretty big deal about his desire that his brothers and sisters, Israelites, the Jewish people, would have embraced Jesus Christ. He takes it to such an extreme. What does he say there? Such strong emotion that he says, man, if I could absorb the consequences of this instead of them, if I, could, if I could trade places, and he even goes as far as saying, if I could be cut off from Christ for them, I would do it. That's pretty intense passion, right? That's, a, that's a, a sincere burden for somebody when you're saying, yes, I would take their place. I would, I would exchange knowing Christ with them because I care about them so much. I love this, that you see a glimpse of his heart, and I think it's important for us to, to have the same, a similar passion for those we love. On a week-in, week-out basis, I get an opportunity to see the different care journal requests as people fill out prayer requests, and seeing, I, I love when I see in, in the different, different write-ups that people do here, just saying, yes, I'm just praying for this person that I care about so bad, I, I'm praying for this person, I'm praying for that person, so I know when Paul describes that burden that many of you carry the same for people you love and care about. I love that. I also notice in this section that he starts, Paul starts by sharing his heart before he starts talking theology. Think about that for a moment. Before he starts talking theology, he makes sure that everybody's very clear on his heart and passion for the needs around him 
And for us, I think that's a, a lesson to be learned before we start hammering people with truth. Let's make sure that they see his truth, that he see that they see. It's so funny because I turned this on when I pulled this out earlier, and there's like a movie trailer playing right now. That's hilarious. Fantastic Four official trailer. I have no idea how that got there. So anyway, I was wondering what noise is coming out of my pocket. Other technology I don't understand. All right, so, so back into this, but I love that he shows uh, his heart before his theology. We can definitely uh, learn from that. God has the same heart and passion for the Jewish people, but it doesn't change the fact that he has a global rescue plan, that the plan is bigger than just Israel. Look at verse 6. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A lot going on there. Let me unpack that a bit with you. The first thing that you might wonder, and it's a, a fair question, is why might someone conclude that God's word had failed? Why might someone conclude... The reason he asked that question is upon glance, when somebody comes and says, look at the Jewish people and how they've responded to Jesus Christ, he came to them and they rejected him. That might be an argument for Jesus Christ being a fraud. If his own people rejected him, we see, uh, we see that that's a part of the, part of the reality and it breaks, uh, it breaks our heart. And you think about that and uh, the, the fact that John 1.11 says he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. So you could upon first reading that be like, well, then it must be not valid. But that's not how it works. He explains, and it's the same thing that we should understand, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, remember that we're not just born into this. We're not just born into this. Just because your, your parents have embraced Christ, just because your uncle has, your aunt has, your grandfather has, we're not just born into it. It's an individual choice. So he's saying, he's explaining to them that this is not, this is not just because it's your part of your ethnic heritage. It's not a guarantee that you're a true Israelite, as he describes there. He explains how it works uh, the rest of it, if you understand and think about it, it's the same thing true for us, is that just because you've been around the church, you've been exposed to truth for a really long time, doesn't mean that you've made a choice to embrace it. Just because you're exposed to it doesn't mean you've embraced it. The same is true for them. He explains how this whole redemption plan had worked. He said, first, the, if you, he points out Isaac, who is the son of that was promised to Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember that in their old age? And it's unbelievable. Are you kidding me? In the 90s, I'm going to have a, a child and you're going to build a, a great nation out of this child? Well, that was, that was Isaac. 
Isaac then went on to marry Rebekah. Rebekah and Isaac had twins, and their names were Jacob and Esau. But it's unusual because the, it points out in the text there that Esau was born first, but Jacob was the object of God's affection, and we're not really sure why he chose to extend the line heading to the Messiah through the one, through the younger brother, if you will, even though they're twins, through the younger and not the older. And that comes to one of those perplexing things that we can say, I don't get it. I don't really know why, but that's what he chose to do. Either way, we have to realize that the end goal was it was all part of God's rescue plan for mankind and be okay with that. And so here, but the then the, it even says, it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So it was a fork in the road and it had to choose which line it was going to follow. But then it asks a confusing question there. It, says, it proposes something that a lot of you, if you may, may have breezed past it, but it says, Esau I hated. Anybody read that and you're kind of like, well, that's kind of hard to swallow. What do you, what do you mean Esau I hated? How do you how do you justify that? And here's where it's important not to read Scripture in just a vacuum, but to look at the bigger picture. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. What's the sign of which verse that we see in the end zone almost every single time? It's the hope for all mankind. What is it? Who can tell me the verse? There you go. Nice job, Josh. You get to keep your job. Uh, and so, 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 so John 3.16 is for God so loved... Wait a second. Is that was Esau part of the world? Do you think he, he may be qualified? So how does this how does this, this hate thing fill in? And then and then we see in 2 Peter 3 9 that, that God doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what does he actually mean by that? I would propose that it's an exaggeration to make a point, much like in Luke 14, 26. We're told to hate our father, mother, wife, and kids to follow Jesus. You remember that verse? You read that and you're like, what, what do you mean I'm supposed to hate them? Well, it's to make, it's, it's, it's a, what's the word, hyperbole, to, to make a, a point to say, this is, this, you need to elevate him to the point that he's above all others, even those closest to us. That was the point that he was making in that verse. And so the same idea is true here as the, the line of Jacob was elevated over the line of Esau. So either way, recognizing that regardless, this was all stemming from God's ultimate plan for mercy to all people. We're going to see that in verse 14. God's choices stem from mercy. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Hard section, huh? That's an intense section. That's why I challenge you guys to read through this in advance because I like, man, I'd like to have other people wrestle through this with me. And I've, this week and last week, actually, since I was off, had opportunity to read and listen to a whole lot on this topic. And different people, it's been 
funny, they're past drop-off books that they find encouraging on this topic or pass on messages. And, and in fact, Jim Lilgerin, who's here, he sent a, a message. It was actually a Q&A session with John MacArthur, and he was asked about this section of Scripture. So I get this, this email. I'm like, yes, now John's going to make it clear for me. He's going to explain this because he's got a full grasp of God's Word, and he's written all kinds of commentary. So I start listening, and John, guess what he says? said, yeah, I don't really get it. I don't really understand it. I was like, oh, shoot. Like, and so it's okay because here's the important thing. It can lead to much debate and much question, but I go back to the cell phone instance where there's parts of God's character that were like, I don't, I don't really get it. There's really two different camps of understanding that have formed out of this. You may have heard or even been a part of the Calvinist debate, Arminianum debate, and kind of wrestled through like, well, well, which camp do I land, land in? And you, maybe you've just been strictly confused by that. Anybody want to admit that? And you're like, am I a five point, a four point? I don't know. Uh, but but it, it's caused quite a bit of division within church. And here's my, what I propose is that it's a healthy in-house conversation, but it was never meant to divide. It's healthy to wrestle through and try to understand aspects of God's character. So instead of that, instead of allowing it to divide, let me just talk through it a little bit with us and break it down. This is a primary text that's used for what we'd call deterministic argument, saying that God determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, which is to some degree true. But how does this align with the impartial love that we see through Jesus Christ and even another question, is he, Paul even talking about an individual's salvation here? Or is he talking about God's fidelity to Israel? Lots of things to, to wrestle through. But I do want to look at some of the things that we do see and explain those, or at least talk through them. He asks a question. He says, is there injustice on God's part? That's what he starts the section with. Look at his own response to that. He says, by no means. So he's adamant to say, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand this. It's not injustice. And then he points to Exodus 33, 19 with a quote. It says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me give you a little backdrop to that. That was written in the time. Do you remember when Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments and the Israelites were left down in, on base camp, down on the ground. What the Israelites got themselves into, what did they do? They, they, built, they built a golden calf. They started worshiping it. They started praying to it, doing this big party for this golden calf of false worship. And Moses comes down. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm in the middle of meeting with Almighty God, and you knuckleheads are down here worshiping this golden calf? Really? And then in response to that, in God's mercy... He ends up killing some Israelites, but he allows the majority to keep on going to protect the ongoing line that would ultimately lead to the Messiah. Now, here's the question for us. Would God have been justified in wiping out the whole crew of them right then and there? They had fully rejected him. They were worshiping a different God. They weren't even acknowledging him in that. But would he have been justified and I would propose in the same way for the Israelites is the same thing that's true for mankind that's chosen to shake their fist at God and say, no thanks, I'm not interested. God would be justified in saying, all right, 
let's play this out. I've talked it through before with you with a, an ant analogy. So say you've been working on this creation. You've decided you're going to make your own race of creatures, and you come up with the ant, which is pretty impressive. They can carry heavy stuff. You make this whole sea of ants. And that whole sea of ants, you're like, all right, I'm going to direct them. I'm going to lead them. It's going to be great. It's going to be an awesome relationship between me and these ants. And then the little ants start looking up and shaking their fists and saying, we don't want anything to do with you. We want to go our own way. Would you be justified in saying, all right, all right, all right. Would you be justified? Like, honestly, like I, I wrestled through this, and this is, a, this is a, 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 the understanding the heart of God. Probably I wouldn't play a good God because that's how I would respond to that. And then even to take that the next step further, we've talked about this before. What if I said, well, I'll come down, I'll live amongst you. I'll, I'll try to direct you and lead you on, on how to live, and then I'm going to let you hang me, whip me, hang me on a cruel cross. Really? Like, what in the world? Like, God, when somebody says God is unjust, you're like, yeah, and I'm so thankful that he is, right? Think about that for a moment. Justice would be giving what someone deserves. He's not just, he's merciful. And that's what he's pointing to here in the text. He extends mercy, patiently waiting on us, patiently waiting on us. And so his mercy is the marker of his character, not his justice, his mercy is the marker of his character. What does he point to? He points to the second example. So the first one is the Israelites that had rebelled. And the second one he points to is the example of Pharaoh. You all know the, the story of Pharaoh. And it says something that we have a hard time swallowing. It says the, the, the idea of, of God actually hardening his heart. Anybody else read that? And you're like, I don't like that idea of God hardening somebody's heart. But again... Let's go back to it in context. How did it play itself out? What did God do with Pharaoh? How did, he, how did he actually harden his heart? He kept on sending Moses back time and time again. Okay, I'm going to display my power in this huge way and then give you an opportunity to acknowledge me as the one true God and turn and let my people go. Nope, not going to happen. Then I do it again and do it again. It's always through God's mercy. Exodus 8.32 but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Exodus 9.34, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So it wasn't taking, God wasn't taking a soft heart and making it hard. That's the important thing to understand. God's mercy provided the occasion for a hard heart. Does that make sense? That's still how God deals with people today. He provides. He keeps pursuing them. They dig in their heels. I'm not going to bend a knee. He keeps pursuing them. I'm going to dig in my heels. That's how God hardens a heart. He provides the occasion for it by his mercy. So that's the story of Pharaoh, and that's the story of mankind. So did he, did he harden his heart? Well, you could look at it that way, but look at the actual facts of how it played itself out. It was more of God's pursuit of him and his resistance to God. So although we don't fully grasp how God operates, how could we? We do know that his choices stem from mercy and compassion. Look at the next question, verse 19, that he proposes. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to the mold, its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not let us, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Whew, you guys make it through that? That was a big section. Are you guys dozing off? You guys are counting down the minutes to the Super Bowl? Well, here, let's, let's think about this for a second. So this is a pretty heavy text. He's basically elevating the degree of questions, and now he's moved to this question, how can man be blamed for his unbelief if it is divinely determined? How can man be blamed for his unbelief if it is divinely determined? That's a, that's a legit question. That's still a real hard question today, and it's something that I would propose that we should, we should all wrestle with. It doesn't sound, based on that, like man has much of a choice, does it? doesn't sound like man has much of a choice, and we don't like the idea of something being outside of our control. We kind of like to have things in a nice little box, and like, I can control this. My response to this is based on this and that, but here is the thing, is it presents the idea that free will and predestination are opposing ideas. Free will and predestination are opposing ideas. What I would suggest, and you can wrestle through this on, on your own, is that they can really coexist nicely together. They can coexist nicely together. Let me tell you, uh, give an example I read by one author, explain the idea of a video recording. I remember back uh, in the era when the Bulls were really good, back living in Chicago, we used to record the games and try to watch them later if you couldn't get it. But how it worked is you had the VHS tape and you set the timer on this crazy thing and just hope you get back and you check and be like, oh, I missed it. But anyway, you'd be really diligent to make sure nobody told you the outcome of the game. Do you guys do that with games? Sometimes guys with sports still today. And here's the thing. It's real similar to this picture. You have a God that knows the whole gamut, the time of yesterday, today, tomorrow, the whole scope of things. He's seen the whole entire picture in the same way that that game, the outcome is clearly determined. The outcome is, de there's our, the outcome is clear, but you still watch it and you're still seeing all kinds of free will and free choices in the context. This guy passing the ball, this guy catching the ball, this guy shooting the ball, this guy dribbling it off the foot if it's the Lakers. And uh, you, th you think about, you think about this, this picture of, of, of watching something that's already happened is a little bit of what we're dealing with with an infinite God. 
So that, that's, and you can wrestle through your own understanding of this, but that's one picture that, I th- that you come to. But either way, he points to another illustration in the text that they would have been all very familiar with, is the idea of a potter and clay. You can read about it in Jeremiah 18. They were consistently pointed to the, Israel, the nation of Israel as being like a, a clay vessel that was made, and their response to God was the determiner or determined whether or not they would be crushed and used for an object of his wrath or rebuilt. And that's really the story of the nation of Israel. When they're obedient to God, when they submit, when they bend a knee, when they bow, their, when they bow before him, God elevates them. He uses them for his glory. When they, when they reject him, God, God uses it and they experience his wrath. It's an ongoing story of Israel back then and present day. So that's the example that he gives, but either way, it's pointed back to a choice that they made. But he asked the question, he says, what if God is just enduring patiently, putting up with a mankind that's rejected him? And isn't that really it? Isn't that what's, what's happening? That's really the description of what we see present day. God's just patiently putting up. I always joke about, like, if I had made this creation, I'm uh, and that, that ants that had rebelled against me, I would be a really lousy God. But we have a God that patiently endures, patiently endures with man's rebellion. So he comes to a conclusion. I think it's fascinating. I think this is a conclusion that we often come to. He comes to a conclusion. He says, who is man to question God? Like, well, that's not a real great conclusion. Basically, he comes to the same conclusion that Job came to and says, based on my life experience and my possible intellect, I have to acknowledge, I can't answer this. I don't get it. Who are you, to, after a few philosophy questions and you, or a few philosophy classes, and you think you can stand toe-to-toe with Almighty God and question Him? Basically, that's what he's saying. Who is man to question Almighty God. Isaiah 55, 8 says, says it best, For my thoughts, describing God, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So really, it's not a question of, of whether he's just or unjust. It's a question of trust. It's a trust exercise. Really, the debate comes down to two different sides, if you want to put these two different camps in there. It either comes down, pay attention here, it either comes down to God reaching down to rebellious mankind and pulling some out of their rebellion based on, I'm not sure how he comes to that conclusion of who to, to pull up. It's either him coming, reaching down and pulling some out of their rebellion or the second possibility in, in this debate is God is reaching down, hand extended, and some reach up from the rebellion and take his hand. But do you see what happens in either scenario? Either scenario, he's still the hero. He's still the one doing the rescuing. He's still, it doesn't make a difference. Let me, let me tell you a story. So my wife and I, when we were, our kids were, were younger, we met, we, 
uh, made the investment in a stroller called a Phil and Ted stroller. Have you guys seen one of these before? This is a picture of a Phil and Ted stroller. This thing was sweet. It was streamlined. It had the back seat, the front seat, and you could jog with this thing. And, uh, but those aren't my kids. Uh, but I just wanted to show you a picture uh, of this. And so here's the, the idea of how it worked. Is so you'd, uh, when you first had a, a baby, you could actually set the, the car seat into the front on the top, and then the, the little bit older kid could be in the back. And so that's how we operated. Here's a, a picture of actually my kids there. That's little Alexa uh, climbing in. Little Sienna's still in that front seat, and Chase is just up to something. And, uh, and, and so, uh, so there, there's my kids. So let me tell you a story of what happened. So we lived on a university campus, and we would walk back and forth from the cafeteria after our meals each day. And Adrian's mom was visiting us from Canada, actually both of her parents. And on one of the walks back, little Sienna was only about three weeks old, and they had set her car seat right in the top part. And little Alexa, who was about 17 months old, 18 months old, uh, was in the back seat, so she's walking along and and uh, with with grandma and grandma, who grew up as a farm girl, notices a weed on the side of the the path. She decides to pause and pick up the weed, not realizing that it was on a slope till. While she was reaching up to pick up the weed, this stroller, which was perfectly aerodynamic and designed for speed, starts heading down this hill. Towards at the bottom of the hill, there's a curb and then a road that it crosses. So it makes it, it's heading down the hill. Grandma starts sprinting, you know. She's, she's chasing this thing down, down the hill. Well, at the bottom of the hill, the, the stroller jumps the curb, starts crossing the street. While Grandma's running down the hill, she didn't successfully jump the curb. Her foot caught. She does a complete face, face plant. It was bad news. Stitches across her forehead, bad news. So she... It goes, the stroller keeps on going, crosses the street on the campus, goes across the street, and it's headed full speed. Are you guys with me right now? It's headed full speed with little Sienna, three weeks old, not buckled in on the top, headed full speed towards this stream that runs through the whole campus, and it has cement drop-offs on both sides, so it would go over the cement and drop into the river. Are you guys with me? So this is like one of the most panicking moments of our life. There's Grandma uh, on, just in a face plant. Adrian's at the top of the hill watching this. This is still traumatic. She's tearing up. Uh, she's watching this whole thing happen. And guess what happens? Guess what happens? There's this random lady that happened to be there. She was walking by. She sees what's going down, goes into a full, like, full sprint chasing this thing. Just before the stroller goes into the river, she grabs the edge of it and stops and saves our kids. Isn't that awesome? So, oh, I barely made it through that. So, the reason I tell that long story is this. So, do you think after review of that situation, I was concerned at whether or not Sienna reached up and grabbed the hand of the woman or the woman grabbed the cart to save the kids? Do you think that was even in my mind? Do you think that was even on my radar? Was I concerned on how the rescue mission worked? Was I, was I oh, well, I got to wrestle through. I think Alexa reached up. I don't know, but I think the woman reached up. I don't know. This is all so confusing. It's, I'm lost in this. I don't know if I can trust that woman. <laughs> no. 
that's not how the story works. That's not how. Either way, the woman is the hero. The woman saved kids that were headed towards a, a, a creek and a, a, a water that, like, we don't know what would have happened if that thing flipped into it. Like, you're, we're grateful because they were rescued. The same is true with this picture for us. We don't necessarily get it. We don't understand it. Either way, we were rescued. The option to be saved was there. Either way, we're just, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And that's my hope with this. As we read these texts and we understand, we're just like, God's. he's still the hero. And will I put my faith and trust in him? Last section, verse 30. See that the plan never depended on human effort, but on faith alone. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's how he wraps things up. He asks two questions there. Do you see it in the text? He says, are Gentiles seen right before God by faith alone? Yep, that's how it works, through faith alone. And do Jews fail to reach God by human effort, absent of faith? Yes. They fail to reach God by human effort, absent of faith. He points out the one single thing that it comes down to, and this is the, the, the crux of the whole story. It all comes down, and he describes them as the, the stumbling block. It all comes down to what do we do with Jesus Christ? What do we do with Jesus Christ? And isn't that what you hear me always say here? Really, our life comes down to really that decision. What are we going to do? Are we going to be frustrated and say, I don't know how he came to these conclusions. I don't understand how he operates. I don't, I don't get it. Or do you say, no, I'm putting my faith and trust in him alone. I might not understand all of it. I might, I might not know how it all functions, how it all plays itself out. But some things I do know in my own life I know that he's been extremely patient with me. I know that he's been super long-suffering. I know that he's pursued me. I know that he keeps on giving me options and options to take his hand. That's what I know in my life. And so do I cling to that? Or, 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 or how about this? How about this of what we know? I know that he loved me enough to come down, live amongst us, lived a perfect life, allowed us to hang him on a cruel Roman cross, I don't know if that doesn't prove someone's character and someone's love for us. I don't know what someone would have to do. This is how it all works. This is how, this is how it works. God came down, lived the perfect life, died as a sacrifice for our sins. We not, might not grasp the rest of, of it. might be like our cell phone. I don't really get it, but that's okay. Because if you did get it, then all of a sudden that makes you God and not him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you for this text, although challenging. I thank you for what we see is the consistent thread in who you are is merciful, consistently moving towards, it even says there that we would avoid becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Your plan for us has always been mercy. 
Your plan for us has always been rescue. I thank you for the ways that you've protected that, the ways you've pursued us, the ways that you've put up sitting and watching patiently as we've rebelled against you. Thank you for dragging us out of our rebellion. We praise you for that. God, you're worthy of praise. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. You rescued me so I could stand and sing, I am a child of God, amen? Pray that you have a wonderful Sunday. If you'd like to participate in our Deacons Fund to help people in our community, we have that as you're leaving today. God bless you. Have a great day.